you have a Bible, you can be turning to the um, book of James. We're in chapter 2, 14 through 26. If you don't have a Bible, the text is printed there for you. In the worship guide, feel free to follow along there. Um, if you are just joining us for the first time or first couple of times today, we're in the middle of this series through um, a letter written by Jesus' half-brother, uh, who's named James, and it's to the churches that are in the area outside of Jerusalem. And, and we've said this before, that James is a, an intensely practical book. You just can't read it without feeling the practicality of it. He, he wants to talk about ethics, what we do, how we live, how we behave, that kind of thing. We saw last week from the sermon Steve preached about how God's people are to love one another well, not show favoritism in the, in the community of the faith. And today, it's as if James wants to zoom out just a little bit more and um, raise a question. For those who would say that they have pure religion, his term, true faith, is it possible to have true faith with no ethics, or to put it in his terms, is it possible to have true saving faith with no works? Big, complicated question, but God speaks to us here in his word, so, um, so let's listen. 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to, to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now let's pray together. Our Father, rarely are we shocked by the language of your scripture, but we are today. And we pray for your wisdom. We pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray for clarity and illumination. And we pray that you would help us to apply what we're reading and to understand the nature of true faith versus false faith. And um, we ask for help in Christ's name. Amen. Ravi Zacharias. Many of you know the name. Many of you were shaped by the man. 
and his ministry of apologetics, defenses of the faith. Many of you also know the headlines made after his death when it was revealed that he had sexually inappropriate contact with over 200 women in his lifetime. It was a devastating revelation, horrific on every level, especially for people who were profoundly impacted by his speaking and his writing. You likely had this conversation with someone after it happened. What do we do with that? Was he even a Christian? Was it real for this guy? Um, it was so catastrophic um, that confusion is what reigned after the revelation. Was it real faith and he's a sinner? We have a category for that. Was it bogus faith and he was a huckster? We have a category for that. When someone's profession of faith is so clear and even articulate, and yet there is this other side that seems to undercut the very faith that they professed, how do we evaluate that? I bet you felt that. I think most of us who know this name felt that when this happened. You may have felt it when other Christian leaders have made public headlines when they have um, fallen in some manner. It's also likely that you know people who would gladly say that they profess faith in Christ. And there's just not much evidence of it. You may have wondered that about your own life. You may say, I, I would say that I'm a Christian. But I, I mean, I have sin. I have doubts. I struggle with being assured that my faith is real. We're not the first people to have these questions. We're not the first people to have these questions about those out there. We're not the first people to have these questions about our own lives. We're not the first people to have to deal with the massive disparity between someone's profession of faith and the lifestyle that therefore follows. And let me say this, we are not going to solve every question that comes from that today. And we're also not going to be the final verdict on the life uh, of Ravi Zacharias. That is not my job this morning. Um, but this isn't a new issue, and James addresses it. And we would do well to look at the text today. Here's what he would have us do. Examine yourself to see if your faith is legitimate. That's the call from this passage. Examine your faith to see if it is legitimate. So what we're going to do is look, simply put, at illegitimate faith, legitimate faith. That, that's our outline. So first, let's talk about illegitimate. Uh, James just talked about favoritism and, um, and partiality within the church, and it forces us to deal with this broader point in verse 14. He's speaking, keep in mind, this is not him talking to the culture. This is not him talking to those people out there. He's talking to the body of Christ, those who profess faith in Jesus. And he's raising the question, what good is it if someone says he has faith in Christ but does not have works? Now, what does he mean by works? It's a broad term. And um, we could put it simply this way, obedience to God in all of its forms, right? So that includes keeping God's law, which he's mentioned multiple times so far, and keeping God's law, remember, as a Christian, not as a means of gaining salvation, right, and doing enough to kind of get in the kingdom, but 
as a Christian, one who has experienced salvation, therefore obeying. Um, Works includes doing certain things to please God, not doing other things because they displease God. It includes being repentant, confessing sin. It includes making restitution where it's necessary. Notice the way he says this uh, in verse 14. that uh, So if someone says he has faith but does not have works, all-encompassing, some form of works, can that faith save him? That's very helpful for us here. That faith, a faith that has no, no obedience to Christ as Lord, uh, a faith that has no obedience to God's law as a Christian, a faith that professes Christ but consistently shows partiality based on our first impressions of people, a faith that knows the ABCs of the gospel and then commits adultery or murder or stealing or any of the other Big Ten without any repentance or change or contrition. Can faith um, that says it loves Christ but consistently hates its neighbor be legitimate? And notice what he's saying. Can that faith save? This is a salvation issue for James. Salvation is on the line. That's his question. Are these people saved from the eternal just wrath of God such that when they die, they go to heaven to be with him? The Greek construction of that answer implies No. If you have a version of faith that has zero corresponding works, that faith cannot save. And hear what he's saying. It's it's not real faith, even if it's verbally professed. It's it's illegitimate. I hope this freaks you out a little bit. It freaks me out a lot. We're talking about someone who, for all purposes, says the right things, makes the credible profession, goes through the motions of joining the church, All of our assumptions would be, yes, kingdom, Christ, Christian. And he's saying it is possible that they could look and sound like that and be deluded and have false faith and end up the subject of God's eternal judgment. That is scary. Which means that saving faith um, has to be more than just having your theology correct. We would be the first people to say, you better have your theology correct. You have to believe the right things, right? We, what we believe about the gospel is critical. Doctrine is supremely important. It has to be more than just the ability to even articulate it. Is it important to be able to articulate your faith? Of course it is. He says in verse 17 that um, a faith that is in profession only, a faith that is... Just a prayer uttered. We think that uttering prayers is good. A faith that is just a recitation of a theological statement. There are times to do that. But no works. That's dead. Not living. And what might that dead faith look like? He gives us an example in verses 15 and 16. Um, Remember, he just talked about showing partiality. Excuse me. Um, He says, if someone has a Christian brother or sister who is in need of clothing and food. So this is someone in poverty with an inability to help himself or herself. Can I ask my wife to get me some water, please? Otherwise, I might die in front of you right now. Mm, Excuse me. Um, So here's what faith without works would look like. Go to the person who is very evidently in need. 
and just say to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled. Give them religious jargon. Go in peace is spiritual language, right? Go with God's favor and um, tell them what you wish would happen to them. I wish that you would find the clothes you need and the food that you need. Tell them you're praying for them and then don't pray for them. Do nothing to help him or her. Give them nothing. Do not enter into their existence and try to actually come up with a solution to their difficult situation. Consider them unworthy of your time and energy, though they bear the name brother or sister. You hear what James is saying. What good is that implied? It is no good. It, it, it is worthless. It is a sham. Dead faith because it has no works. Thank you so much. Two cups at that. All right, we'll see. I can't make any promises. Um, look at verse 19. What's interesting is that this dead, no good, worksless faith is shared by an unlikely group of creatures. Um, so the person who says he has faith only in this context would know something called the Shema. You may know this. Um, they were Jewish background Christians. Every day of their lives, they would have said Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. And so that they would say every day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This was on their lips every day. And the person who has faith only would agree with this. They would say, I believe <clears throat> the Lord is one. And um, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe that, and they shudder. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but demons actually have great theology, um, probably more polished than ours in some ways. The problem is they hate God. If you read through the New Testament and you see the demons that Jesus encounters, they're always saying what's true. Oh, we know exactly who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Um, the problem is they are actively working against him. They hate him and everything that he hates. And James says that they shudder because they know enough. They know who God is. They know what he's about. They also know that they stand subject to his wrath and condemnation in the end. The human who professes faith and does no works of faithful obedience is in the same camp as demons? Yes, that's what he's saying. The problem is they don't shudder because the human who professes faith but has no corresponding works is so deceived and duped that they think as long as they say the right words or right formula or right theology or right prayer that they're saved and that God is going to be pleased with them. Even the demons know better than that. They shudder because they know they stand condemned. Just so we're clear, illegitimate faith is alive and well in our day, just as it was then, and not just in the headlines. Um, anytime that faith is, is lip service only, it, it's dead. Anytime faith is just a consolation for when I die, there is a chance that it is useless. Anytime faith is a means whereby we try to gain something else, uh, power or clout or status or, or money or a girlfriend or a boyfriend, that faith is suspect. 
anytime there's an absolute lack of repentance in a person's life, we're not crazy for wondering, do you really believe this? Anytime we would profess faith in Jesus, but we would not help a brother or sister if our life depended on it, because let's be honest, they need to learn how to care for themselves and fix it themselves. We need to ask, have we ever received help from Jesus in the gospel? Has that become real to us? And there's the issue. What is it that we're after when we say, I have faith? What is it that you're after when you say, I I have faith, I believe? Are we after the object of faith himself, Jesus? Or are we after something else? If I believe that I need Jesus more than anything, it it will demand a change in how I think, how I feel, uh, the life I live in the world around me. It will demand it. And it will produce all of those changes slowly over time. The heart that has received grace from Jesus will desire to give grace to other people. With wisdom, of course, yes. The heart that has been accepted by God when we confess and repent will be quick to confess and repent when we know that we've done wrong to another person. James isn't saying, make sure you do some works so that you can show that you're saved. He's saying, if you have true saving faith, you will do works, naturally. And here's the thing. If your faith is in something else entirely, um, you will do works naturally as well. See, the person who disregards the poor, to use his example here, he is displaying works that are a result of his faith. If I believe in self-reliance as an ultimate uh, reality, if I believe in survival of the fittest as an ultimate reality, why would I ever help these weak people who need to learn how to figure it out for themselves? Um, If I believe in time efficiency so much that I cannot be inconvenienced by this person who is in need because they're going to set up, they're going to upset my schedule, um, I would never help them. You see the issue there. My faith is in something besides Jesus, and it is producing works, and they don't look anything like Jesus. Why? Because my faith isn't in Jesus. Um, If there are no Christ-honoring works in your life, you're right to wonder if you have real saving faith in Christ. This this is hard because our culture has been shaped by something that we could sum up as easy believism or, or cheap grace. This is the idea that You can do whatever you want as long as you pray the right prayer at the end of it, um, go through some religious ritual, something like this. What you do doesn't matter. Um, This is not just for Southern evangelicals either. Uh, I was watching a TV show a few years back. One of the characters is a celebrity who is trying to find a religion because he says that, and he's a bad celebrity, he says when celebrities uh, tend to get less jail time when they can convince a jury that they have had a religious conversion experience. So he's going around asking everybody what religion they are. He asks one character, what's your religion? And the person says, I, I just kind of do whatever Oprah tells me, right? He goes to another person, what are you? And the person says, I'm Irish Catholic. And the guy says, um, it's great because you can do anything, anything. And as long as you go to confession, you're forgiven. Not surprisingly, the guy says, I'm Irish Catholic until another Irish Catholic comes and tells him about the heaping uh, shroud of guilt that overbears his entire existence. And then, of course, he's, he's out uh, of being Irish Catholic. But they're spoofing this kind of religion. Do whatever you want, Jesus will bail you out. We have our own southern version of it that's captured in the old folk song, Moonshiner. The Moonshiner's waxing eloquently and says, um, 
Give me food when I'm hungry. Give me drink when I'm dry. A dollar when I'm hard up. And religion when I die. Only then. There it is. Give me religion when I die, but only then. No works, no compassion, no repentance, no change. No legitimate faith. Demonic faith, in fact. Professing faith and then hating him and doing whatever else I want instead. It was in the church then, it's in the church now. We need to examine ourselves. And we need to do that as a community. And so let me invite you to uh, ask someone close to you, perhaps even someone inside the church, uh, someone who knows you pretty well, um, what your faith looks like on the outside. Uh, What do you see in my life? Have you seen any change in me over the four or five years that you've known me? Maybe ask a spouse this question, what's it like to be married to me? Do you see any fruit that Jesus is at work in my life? Risky, risky question. Maybe, um, maybe ask a kid, teenage kid, what is it like to have me as a dad or a mom? Uh, ask a coworker or your boss, or if you're, if you're the boss, an employee, what's it like to work with me? Do you see any evidence that Jesus is the Lord of my life? And then prepare for the discussion. But that, that could be a good practice for us. What, what do you do, though, if you have a moment where you might realize that I, I'm not sure that my faith is legitimate? Right? I, I don't know. The, the, the jury's kind of out, and it's debatable. Right? Um, maybe I am culturally Christian only, in name only. Maybe you're a high schooler or middle schooler who realizes that I think that, you know, my faith really isn't my own. I just show up because this is what my parents do. We're invited this morning to, to exercise true faith, which almost always begins with repent, right? Repent and believe. Turn not away from God. Turn back to him and tell him that you want to believe and ask for an increase of faith to trust the object of our faith himself, Jesus Ask him to give you legitimate faith. Well, let's talk about that. What is legitimate faith? What does it look like? Can we even see it? Second point here. That's exactly what James says to the hypothetical objector in verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. So he draws the, uh, drives the wedge between the two. And James says, show me. Right? Uh, show me your faith apart from your works. Can't be done. You can't see faith, right? You, you can't, it has no tangible expression except in the life of the person who, who adheres to it. That's the only expression that it has. That's what James says. I'll show you my faith by my works. And show is an important word for understanding this passage, especially as we consider what James means when he uses the word justification in verse 21 and every Protestant brain poof, explodes, Right? Um, James' example for how faith must produce produce works comes from the life of Abraham, the major figure in the life of Christianity, Judaism, doubly for these people. And James says, I'm going to show you how faith apart from works is useless. In verse 21, he says, Abraham is justified by works. Whoa, 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 right? We are Christians. We are Protestant Reformational Christians. We are not Roman Catholics. We do not believe that a person is justified by works. This is a big deal for us. Um, it all comes down to what does James mean when he uses the word justified? It is the same word 
as Paul uses when he says, so you see, a person is justified by faith and not works of the law. Um, here's, here's our understanding of the gospel. And let me just say this to you. If you're new or you're not sure what the gospel is, th- this is in a nutshell what we believe, that people like us, sinners, are justified, defined, put in a right standing with God um, by faith in Jesus who was perfect, Jesus who was crucified on our behalf, Jesus who was raised from the dead, in, by faith in him alone, apart from any works that we could do. Our only hope is in what Jesus has done for us, never in what we've done for him. We're told that when we come to faith in Jesus, our sin is transferred to him, paid for on the cross. His righteousness, his perfect record, is imputed, transferred to us, so that when God sees us, he sees Jesus' perfection, clothing us like a robe. That is good news. That's the gospel, and it's everything to us. Um. James is writing before Paul ever wrote his letters, A, can't pit them against each other, that's historically dishonest, writing to a different audience about a different issue. He is not trying to answer the question, how can a person become righteous before God? He is not trying to answer that question. He's not trying to answer the question, why would anyone ever need to come to faith in Christ? That's Paul's question in Romans. It's Paul's questions in Galatians. It's the question that the Reformation was trying to to answer. And it is critical for our understanding of the gospel. James' question is, what does real saving faith look like? Different question altogether, even though he uses the same word. Let's talk about Abraham for a second. James says in verse 21, uh, Abraham is justified by his works when he offered Isaac up on the altar that happened in Genesis 22. You might recall that story. God tests Abraham's faith, tells him, offer up your only son on the altar. The angel stops him at the very last second. Um, Abraham did it because it says that he believed that God can raise the dead. So he, he, God told him, he believed, and he acted. And James says his faith was active along with his works. His faith was completed or fulfilled by his works. That his actions fulfilled what the scriptures said in Genesis 15 before, which James quotes. Before Abraham offered Isaac, before Abraham had been circumcised, before Abraham had done any works at all, we read it earlier, he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Genesis 15 still comes before Genesis 22 justifying right standing before God faith that is fulfilled visibly on the earth by Abraham actually obeying God and meeting the test of his faith. You see the difference in those things. We are justified before God by faith alone, and that justification is displayed to the world around us, to people and even to ourselves, when we obey God in response to his mercy. That's why the word show is critical in this passage. That's what James is after. What will show true faith? So even when he's using the justify word, there it's in its range of linguistic meaning, it certainly means what Paul uses it to mean, right standing before God. It also has in its range of meaning the display of someone's right standing before God, justification horizontally of what has been justified vertically. 
That's what we're dealing with here. Spiritual realities made visible. One guy said it this way. Paul is dealing with obstetrics, how new life begins. James is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics, how Christian life grows and matures and ages. That's, that's not a bad way to think about it. It's pretty helpful. Same with the other example, Rahab, the prostitute, Canaanite. Um, every reason for Rahab to not be included in anything. She is a prostitute Canaanite who heard that Israel was coming, who heard about their God, Yahweh, and who believed, I think he's real and has power. And so I'll hide your spies and send them out another way so they don't get destroyed here. Faith that worked itself out through works. Why bring this up, James? What's his goal? He wants us to ask the question, is your faith anything like that of Abraham? Is it anything like that of Rahab? Is it legitimate? And again, it can be confusing because we say things around here all the time like, don't ground your hope eternally on your moral performance or on your obedience to God. Ground your hope in Christ's obedience for you, his performance on your behalf, his death and resurrection for you. It's true. That's what it means to rest in justification by faith alone. God accepts us because of what Jesus has done only. It's also true that a diagnostic for our faith to see whether it is real or not is to ask the question, is our faith producing any obedience? Is there any life change? Is there any good fruit growing because of what Christ has done for me? So how do we respond? What do we do with this passage? Go do some good works, right? No, thankfully. That's not the the proper response here. Um, The question is, what kind of tree are we? It would be ridiculous to tell a pear tree, go and produce apples, right? That's the question James is getting to. What kind of tree are you? Are, Are you an apple tree that's producing apples? Or are you a pear tree that cannot produce apples? Uh, You might not be producing apples because you're not an apple tree yet, and God loves to change the tree itself. That's what we mean when we talk about someone becoming a Christian, uh, conversion, believing in Christ. He gives you a new nature. Uh, You become a new creation altogether, and new creations will begin slowly, yes, haltingly, sure, to to look like the one uh, in whom we have been united. It's possible that uh, you're here and you're not a Christian, And uh, I'd love to talk to you more about that and sit down and talk about any questions that you have. It's also possible that you're here and you would have to say, I'm producing apples, but there aren't many. And they look kind of bad. And we've got some worms. And um, maybe I need some help. Uh, What do you do about that? We need our faith to increase. And if you've ever tried to increase your faith, you know that you can't just conjure that up or you can't just make that happen in your life. But you can look more closely at the object of your faith. And in fact, that's the key. To to become the healthy tree, we need need the one who uh, changes us to come and to make us healthier. We need to get our eyes on him. We need to understand that the brother or sister who's poorly clothed and lacking in daily food is me. I am poorly clothed and lacking in food. And Jesus shows up and promises to clothe me in the robes of his righteousness and to feed me with the bread of life, which is himself. He is the one that we need. And that's good news. 
Uh, if we believe that, we will begin to see our life reflect our faith like Abraham's did. You ever read Abraham's life? Could, we, could Abraham ever be confused with being perfect in his life? Hardly. For every great moment of faith, then he, almost in the next passage, does something completely stupid and foolish, and something blows up because of it. Uh, you bet that Rahab did not just become perfect after she hid the spies. No. There are no heroes in the Bible except Jesus. For those who will make him their hero, they will begin to obey joyfully. Is your faith legitimate? Let me close with a um, thinking about this passage and just honestly taking the hard look at, at Ravi Zacharias again and feeling the heartbreak over that. I, I was reminded of a, another now deceased Christian leader. Um, is the, the deceased president of the mission organization Crew, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, his name is Steve Douglas. Uh, one person called him one of the most influential Christian leaders you may never have heard of. Harvard Business School grad, staffed with Crew for over 50 years, was the president of it for quite a time, uh, an organization that brings the gospel to, to millions. The tribute that I read that was most interesting came from his personal assistant from 2009 to 2011. Now, if you want to get to know what somebody is like in real life, you talk to their spouse or you talk to their closest coworkers. This guy's personal assistant would have known all the dirt. And he started to tell stories about Steve Douglas is like 6'4", former college basketball player, and flew all over the world most of the time. That was his job. Go and encourage all of the global leaders of this organization. And every, he, he won enough points on, through the airline system to always be in first class. And he almost always got his ticket downgraded from first class to economy. And when he couldn't do that, he would give his assistant the first class ticket and he would ride in economy. Why? Because he wanted to avoid even the appearance of any financial impropriety as a Christian leader and for the organization. He um, always declined honorariums when he spoke. He got a paycheck. Again, he didn't want to give any impression that he was doing this for the money. Uh, the assistant said, I'm convinced that Steve attempted to share Christ with every person he ever sat beside on an airplane, even when he was exhausted. Um, on one drive, the assistant says, after a, a very exhausting trip, uh, Mr. Douglas should have been sleeping in the car because they had an early morning the next day. He chose to engage his assistant for three or four hours on the drive on his personal life, his personal devotional life, what's going on. And the guy says, you, you need to go to sleep. You've got an early morning. And Steve said, no, nah, God probably put me in this car right now to encourage you. And this is the assistant's summary. He says, that's how he saw the world. I was the young assistant. He led one of the largest Christian organizations in the world. And on that drive, he believed his job was to serve me. Legitimate faith, right? And you don't have to be a major Christian leader to have it, thankfully. Uh, this is the life to which you and I are called. Whatever your vocation, whatever your stage of life, um, faith that works itself out in your parenting, in your marriage, in your work, in your retirement. So examine yourself and see if your faith is real and ask the Lord to help you believe and repent and bear good fruit until you die or until he returns. To close uh, and quote Martin Luther, we are saved by faith alone.
and saving faith is never alone. All right, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, it is confusing to wade through a passage like this, and so we ask now for your help. We ask for the help of your spirit to do good, healthy diagnostics on ourselves, not to beat ourselves up, but to honestly assess whether we have true faith or not. I pray for anyone in this room who, by the help of your spirit, realizes that their faith has not been legitimate. Would you give them the gift of repentance that leads to life? For all of us who see all the diseased fruit in our lives and the weaknesses and the frailties, would you get our eyes on Jesus and help us to produce good fruit? Um, And we look forward to the day when there is no more need for faith because our faith has become sight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing our hymn of response. If you have a Bible, you can turn to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And uh, if you want to be kind, you can utter a quick prayer and ask the Lord to help me not cough uh, uncontrollably in the middle of this sermon like I did last service, which was embarrassing. So um, uh, we're in James chapter 2, 14 through 26. And um, if you are just joining us for the first time uh, today, we're in the middle of a series written by James, um, Jesus' half-brother, to the the church that is made up of Jewish background Christians kind of outside the area of Jerusalem. We've said this before that James is incredibly practical, right? Um, Last week, Steve's sermon was about people, uh, the people of God loving one another well, not showing favoritism. James is very concerned about ethics, right? What we do, how we live. And um, today's passage, it's almost like James wants to to zoom out on a little bit of a larger question. For those who would profess to have what he calls pure religion, right, true faith, can you have faith with no ethics? Or to use his term, can you have legitimate faith, saving faith, with no works? Big, complicated question, but God graciously speaks to us about it here in his word, so let's read and and listen. James 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Our Father, our confusion is real. Our questions are there. Um, <clears throat> we pray for the illumination that can only happen by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would show us what you want us to do with this and, and help us to apply it to our lives. We pray that by your goodness and grace, um, we would be open to the, the searching of your spirit and to determine whether our faith is real or possibly false. Would you be gracious to us and help us to get our eyes, even in this passage, on our Lord Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Ravi Zacharias. Even the name said publicly, already, if you know it, brings conflict in your thinking. Many of you know the name. Um, you could have been shaped by his ministry of apologetics, defenses of the faith, uh, known speaker and writer, made headlines when after his death it was revealed that he had sexually inappropriate contact with over 200 women in his lifetime. Devastating revelation. Horrific for those who grew spiritually as a result of his writing and, and speaking. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. You probably had this conversation with someone soon after this happened. <clears throat> what do we do with that? Um, was he a Christian? How can someone who professes faith so well like he did be guilty of such a horrific, unchecked, unrepentant reality that very few people disagree with? And he has passed away, and so there's no opportunity for him to respond to it and to see whether he was repentant. Was it real faith, but he's a sinner? Was it bogus faith, and he's a huckster? Was it something in between? I bet you felt that if you're familiar with that particular name. Uh, and maybe if you're not, I bet you have felt that when some other notable Christian leader made headlines by, because of some sort of scandal. What do we do when someone's profession of faith and their life are in utter disparity between each other. We're not the first to have that question. Uh, you may have thought this about your own life. You may have wondered, am I, am I a real Christian? Do I really believe this stuff? Um, I have doubts. I have sins. I struggle with being assured that my faith is real. You're not the first person to ask that question. You won't be the last. Let me say this up front. <clears throat> we are not going to solve all of those questions this morning. So just know that. We're also not the final verdict and word on Ravi Zacharias. We're not going to solve that one either. We're just going to have to live with it. But this isn't a new issue. James has addressed it. And what he would have us do as we consider people out there and ourselves is to do this. Examine yourself. 
and see if your faith is legitimate. That's the call here from James chapter 2. Um, examine yourself to see if your faith is legitimate. So we're going to look at two things today as we try to figure that out. What is illegitimate faith? What is legitimate faith? Uh, first, let's talk about illegitimate faith. Uh, the issues of favoritism and partiality, which we looked at last week, force him to deal with this broader point. Apparently, there are some who say they have faith in the church, but their works uh, betray them. And so he asks the question, and again, he's speaking to the church, not the culture, right? Not, not the people out there. He's speaking to, to these people in here who have professed Christ. What good is it if someone says he has faith in Christ but does not have works? Let's talk about works. Broad term that really could just mean obedience to God in all of its forms. It would include keeping the law, which he's mentioned several times already, but keeping the law as a Christian, meaning that... Um, you keep it because you have been saved by Christ already, therefore you love God and want to obey him, not keeping it as a means to gain favor with God or something like that. It would include doing certain things because it pleases the Lord, not doing certain things because they displease the Lord. It would include repentance, confession, restitution where necessary. But notice what he says in verse 14. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can, can that faith save him? That's a helpful way to say it. Can a faith that has no corresponding obedience to Jesus, uh, no obedience to God's law as a Christian, faith that professes Christ but consistently shows partiality based on what someone looks like, faith that knows the ABCs of the gospel but then commits adultery, murder, stealing, any of the other Ten Commandments with no repentance, contrition, or life change, is that valid? Can faith that says it loves Christ but then hates its neighbor consistently be real? And can that faith save, James says? We need to understand salvation is on the line in verse 14. Can that faith save him? Can that person be saved from the eternal justice of God, which he promises to pour out at the end, um, such that the person goes to heaven when he, he or she dies? And the Greek construction of this sentence says, no, that person cannot because that person's faith is not real. If you have a version of faith with no corresponding works, it is not saving faith. Hear what he's saying. Even if it's verbally professed, it's illegitimate. It's a little upsetting. Slightly frightening. Kind of puts me on edge. Possibly puts you on edge. Um... This means that it's possible for someone to make a credible profession of faith, sound like a Christian, go through the motions of joining a church, look and sound like the real thing, say they have faith, but be so deluded that they have false faith and end up bearing God's eternal punishment. That is frightening, which means that saving faith has to be about more than just getting your theology correct. And we would be the first people to say, your theology needs to be correct. Doctrine matters. What you believe is incredibly important. You can't miss the core doctrines of the gospel and expect to, you can't not know who Christ is and then expect to be saved by Christ. You have to know who he is. It's important. But just having correct theology and no works can't do it. Um, you got to be able to do more than just articulate it. He says in verse 17 that profession only, saying a prayer only, reciting a theological statement only, all good things 
but no works is dead. Not real. Not saving. Um, what might it look like? He gives an example in 15 and 16. He, he just talked about showing partiality. And so now he says, if, if someone has a Christian brother or sister who is in need of food or clothing, so this is a poverty situation within the church, um, here's what faith without works would say. <clears throat> Give them a spiritual platitude and do nothing. Say to them, go in peace. That's religious language. Go in peace. May the Lord bless you. And then um, tell them what you hope will happen to them. I hope that you find what you need. Hope you get some food and some clothes. Um, I'm going to pray for you. And then not pray for them. And then do nothing. Do not enter their existence and try to help them find a solution. Consider them unworthy of your time and energy, though they bear the name brother or sister. James says, is, what good is that? And his answer is very clear. It is no good. It is dead faith that produces no works. What's interesting is that he equates this dead, no good, worksless faith with another unlikely group of creatures. Look at verse 19. The person who says he has faith only would know something called the Shema, which is from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Jewish background people would say the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear, which is from hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. They would say that every single day. Part of their normal, everyday existence. They would know it. They would say it. And he says, you say that God is one. You know the Shema. Great. The demons know it too. The demons believe and they shudder. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but demons have really good theology. They know who they're dealing with. Their problem isn't a lack of knowledge or an incomplete theology. The problem is that they know who God is and they hate him. And they want to do everything against him and his people. Think about the demons that Jesus encounters in the, in the Gospels. Um, they know exactly who he is. You are the Holy One of God. And, and they know his authority. Uh, please don't send us into this place where we don't want to go. Because we know that you can. Um, James says they shudder because they also know that their days are numbered that their time is limited, and that God will be just in the end and will destroy them. And so what he is saying is a human who professes faith, but there are no corresponding works of faithful obedience, is in the same camp as demons, but they're actually worse off because the demons at least shudder because they know that judgment's coming. The person who says they have faith but no works doesn't shudder because they are so deceived and duped that they think they have saving faith. And they think that as long as they say the right words, right formula, right theology, right prayer, right whatever, that all is well. But James wants them to know, no, no, that sort of faith is illegitimate. And just so we're clear, this is alive and well in the church today, as it was then, not just in the headlines, not just those people out there, but, but people who, who would make a profession of faith. Anytime that faith is lip service only, it's dead. Anytime faith is just a consolation for when you die, that's it. That's all it's for. There's a chance it's useless. Anytime faith is, anytime faith is something that helps you gain something else primarily. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe the gospel and somehow that gets you power or status or money or a relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, flirt to convert, right? Faith is suspect. Um, 
Anytime there's a lack of repentance in a person's life, we're not crazy to wonder if that faith is real, right? Anytime we would say that we profess faith in Jesus, but we wouldn't help a brother or sister in need if our life depended on it because they honestly just need to learn how to take care of themselves. We need to ask ourselves the question, so, but, but have, I, have I received help from Jesus? Because that really is the issue. When we say we have faith, what is it that we're after, right? When we say that we have faith, are, are we after the object of faith himself, Jesus Christ, Savior of sinners, Son of God? Or is it possible that in saying we have faith, we're actually after something else? If I, if I believe that I need Jesus more than anything, it demands a change in how I think, how I feel, how I live in the world around me, a heart that's received grace from Christ, will extend it to others with wisdom, yes, all of that, but there will be, there will be corresponding works. James isn't saying in this passage, hey, y'all make sure you do some works so that you look like a Christian. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you have true saving faith, you will do works. Perfect works? Nope. But, but there will be change. Uh, implied in this, interestingly, is that if your faith is in something else, there will be works for that too. What we believe always produces works, right? So, um, but they won't look like Jesus. Uh, the person who disregards the poor, to use his example, is displaying works that are a result of his faith. If you really believe that self-reliance is the primary value in the world, or if you believe that survival of the fittest is the driver of all humanity, you will just assume that these weak people need to figure it out for themselves. You have faith, and it is now producing a work. It's just bad faith and a bad work, right? If I believe in time efficiency so much that I absolutely can't be inconvenienced by another person who's needy because they're going to upset my schedule, I have faith in my time efficiency, and it is producing a work. But it's just not a good work. Faith always produces works. But faith in what? What kind of works? Any, if there are no Christ-honoring works in our lives, we're right to wonder if we know Christ at all. This is hard for us because in our culture, we've been shaped by what we might call easy believism or, or cheap grace. It's the idea that you can do whatever you want as long as you make sure you pray the prayer um, or believe in Jesus or go through some religious ritual. It knows no geography or denominational background either, right? It's not just for Southern evangelicals. I was watching a TV show a few years ago. One of the characters is a celebrity, <clears throat> and um, he's a bad celebrity. And he says, I need to find a religion because uh, studies show that juries are sympathetic to uh, criminals who have just been converted. That's his way of saying, I'm going to get into some trouble and I'm probably going to be before a jury, and I need them to be sympathetic to me. So he goes around asking people what their religion is. He asks one person, and they say, I usually just do whatever Oprah tells me, right? He asks another person, and they say, well, I'm Irish Catholic. He says, it's great because you can do anything, anything, and as long as you go to confession, you're forgiven. So the guy immediately says, I'm Irish Catholic, right? And then some, an actual Irish Catholic comes up to him and starts to tell him about the incredible burden of unrelenting guilt that shrouds all families that are Irish Catholic, right? And so he immediately gets out of it. But it's a, it's a spoof of this kind of religion. Do whatever you want. Jesus will bail you out. We have our own versions in the South, 
where Christianity is the, the fire insurance card, right? Uh, captured in an old song, uh, The Moonshiner. He's waxing eloquently about his life. He says, um, give me food when I'm hungry, give me drink when I'm dry, a dollar when I'm hard up, religion when I die, only then. There it is. Religion when I die, but only then. Otherwise, leave me alone and let me do whatever I want. No works required. No compassion, no repentance, no change. And James would have them know it's not real. It's illegitimate. Um, it's, it's demonic faith, actually. It's professing to know the living and true God, but really just hating him and doing whatever you want. Um, so what do we do with that? We need to discern the legitimacy of our faith. We need to ask if it's possible that we've had illegitimate faith. We need to do that in community. Here, here are just some questions to, to get us going on that. <clears throat> what, what if you ask someone close to you, someone even in the church, what, um, what does my life look like to you? Is there any evidence that you see in my life that I actually know Jesus? To break it down a little more, if you're married, what if you asked your spouse, what's it like to be married to me? Maybe um, allow yourself a few hours before you answer or ask that question. Could be a longer conversation than you're prepared for. Um, do you see any evidence that I know Jesus? What's it like to be married to me? If you have children and they're old enough to, to talk about it, what's it like to have me as a dad or as a mom? Do you see any evidence that Jesus has been at work in my life? At your, at, your, at your job, ask a coworker or an employee or your employer, what's it like to have me working for you? I say that I'm a Christian. Do you see any evidence of that? That's a hard thing to do. Could be necessary for a helpful examination. And, and, and by the way, if you do get to a place where you would have to say, I think my faith has been illegitimate. I think I've been a cultural Christian only. I think I have said the right things for years, but I don't know that I actually know Christ Maybe you're a middle schooler, high schooler, and you realize that your faith isn't actually your own. You're just parroting whatever you've uh, seen, which that's good, but it's got to become your own. What, what can you do? You're invited to exercise real, legitimate faith. And the first step of real, legitimate faith is almost always the same. Repent, which is not the fiery thing that it seems like on our light posts around here with the big sign. It, it just means to stop turning away from God and turn back to him and put faith in, in Jesus who promises to forgive sinners and ask him to, to produce legitimate faith in you. Tur turn back to him. That could be the first step of legitimate faith for you today. Okay, so what is legitimate faith? What's it look like? Can we even see it? Second point. That's what James says to the hypothetical objector in verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. They drive a wedge between the two. And James says, show me. Show me your faith apart from your works. You know what he's saying. It can't be done. You can't see faith. You can't see it. This is an invisible thing unless it is displayed in someone's life at some level. Um, and that's what he says. I'll show you my faith by my works. And in fact, that word show is incredibly critical to understand this passage, especially when we get into what James means when he uses the word justification in verse 21. This is his example for how works come from a life of faith. It's from Abraham. 
And, and so he's going to show them. And he says in verse 21, Abraham was justified by works. Woe, 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 woe. We are Christians. We are Protestants. We are reformational. And Paul says that a man is justified by faith and not by works. What is this, right? Um, it's a big deal. Uh, you may have felt it as you've read through this passage before. Um, in our understanding of the gospel, and this does come from Paul's language, Paul uses this word, justified, and, and he says that that word is about you and I coming into a right standing with God. Uh, so it, when we talk about the gospel at our church, here's what we mean. This is what we believe is good news, that we are justified before God. We're made right in his presence by faith alone in the perfect for us and crucified for us and resurrected Jesus Christ apart from any of our works. And our only hope is in what Jesus has done for us, never in what we've done for him. We're told that when we come to faith in Christ, our sin is transferred to him, bore at the cross. His righteousness is imputed to us, transferred to us, credited to our account, so that when we stand before God, we are holy and righteous and just and free in his presence. And that is good news. That's the gospel. And, and it is the, it's the only reason that any of us are here. Now, um, what is James talking about? Because he uses the same word. A couple of, couple of things to consider here. James is writing most likely before Paul ever wrote his letters. So to pit them against each other is historically dishonest. That's, that's not helping anything. Because it's not like James is reading Paul's letters and then responding to it. He, it's unlikely that he, Paul may not even be a Christian at this point. James seems to be writing so early. Um, James isn't trying to answer the question, how can a sinner become righteous before God? That's not his concern. That's not what he's writing about. He's not trying to say, why does someone need to come to faith in Christ? That's Paul's question as he writes Romans and Galatians. That's the question of the Reformation, yes. It's critical for understanding the gospel. James is asking this question. Okay, what does real saving faith look like visibly in this world around us? Two different questions, same word used to describe their answer. So he mentions Abraham and says he was justified by works when he offered Isaac up on the altar. That's from Genesis 22. You might remember the story. God tests Abraham's faith. Go offer your only son that I promised you for so many years, which you had in your old age, the heir of promise. Go offer him and sacrifice him. In the, in the 11th hour, the angel tells him, no, don't do it. I know that you believe God. And it says in the scripture that Abraham believed that God could even raise him from the dead. And what James likes, would like to tell us here is that Abraham's faith was active along with his works. His faith was completed and fulfilled by his works. Abraham's actions in Genesis 22 fulfilled what the scripture said in Genesis 15, which is what we read earlier, that before Abraham ever offered Isaac, before he was ever circumcised, before he had ever done any of the works that he would do, what does it say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15 still comes before Genesis 22. His, his righteousness by declaration, by faith alone, 
is what led to his obedience in Genesis 22. His vertical justification is what leads to this horizontal justification in life before people written for us to understand. Um, That's why the word show is so critical to this passage. This is what James is after. What will true faith show? Those who have been justified before God will see their faith justified before men. The vertical leads to the horizontal. Um, And that's what he means when he says verse 24, which sounds so wrong to us. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Justified before whom? God? Certainly not. That would contradict the rest of the Bible. Justified before men? Spiritual realities made visible? Yes. One guy said it this way. Paul is dealing with obstetrics, how new life begins. James is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics, how Christian life grows and matures and ages. That's a good way to think about it. It's the same thing in mind with the next example from Rahab. A prostitute Canaanite, right? Not first on everybody's list of who's going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And she heard that the Israelites were coming to Jericho, and she heard that their God had real power, and she believed it. So when they sent spies, she said, okay, your God's real. You guys, I'll hide you so that our people don't kill you. She acted on what she believed. Her faith produced works. Why bring all this up? What's James' goal here? He wants us asking, is your faith like that of Abraham? Is it even like that of Rahab? Is it legitimate? Which can be confusing because we say things all the time around here like, do not ground your hope in your moral performance or in your obedience to God. Ground your hope in Christ's obedience for you, his performance on your behalf, his death and resurrection for you. And it's true. The gospel is good news. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's also true that as Christians, God gives us diagnostics to test and see whether our faith is real and and whether it is producing obedience. What do we do with this? How do we respond? Go do good works, right? No. Ask yourself this. um, What kind of tree are you? Are you an apple tree producing apples? Is it possible that you're a pear tree that can't produce apples? Right? That's the diagnostic here. Um, If you're not producing any apples, maybe you're not an apple tree yet. Do you know that God loves to change the tree itself? In fact, that's the only way the fruit can ever grow. That's what we mean when we talk about becoming a Christian or being converted or receiving the new birth, or whatever language we want to use. God, he makes us a new creation. And a new creation will bear the good fruit um, of the new creation itself. If you're not a Christian yet, um, or you're not sure, we'd love to talk to you about that. Give you a chance to ask questions. Um, It's possible that you're here and you would have to say, I'm an apple tree that's bearing some apples, but there aren't many. And they're pretty ugly, and they don't seem healthy, and I feel like I'm a diseased tree. What, what do you do? Right? What do you do if you are producing some works, but you would like to produce more? You, you, the key to this is, is faith, but you can't conjure up new faith. Did you know that? You can't just believe more. You can't just go and sin no more. You, you actually can't do that on your own. What you can do is get a much closer look at the object of your faith. 
you can get your eyes on Jesus in such a way that, that he might actually begin to grow you more. Uh, to see your need and to come to him in it. To understand that the brother or sister who's poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, that's you and me. That's us. We have nothing to bring before God. And it's Jesus who clothes us in his righteousness, feeds us with the bread of life, which is himself, and gives us that the whole journey until we're dead or Jesus returns. Um, are you going to be perfect in this life? No. If we're supposed to have faith like Abraham's, I encourage you to go and read Abraham's life. What you'll see is a great moment where he believes and, and God is glorified and great things. And then the next, like the next verse, stupid, foolish, what are you doing? Right? And that just sounds a lot like us, right? Like we believe, help our unbelief, right? We're faithful to the Lord in this moment and then we, we falter again. And then we have to come back to the God who gives mercy. There are no heroes in the Bible except Jesus. But for those who will look to the hero himself, we'll find ourselves obeying. I, I was reminded this week, looking at this passage and, and even just thinking through the, uh, Ravi Zacharias and the difficulty of that and kind of re, you know, rethinking that in light of the past couple of years. And it, it caused me to think of an, another Christian leader who is deceased as well. Um, who one person called one of the most influential Christian leaders you may never have heard of. Uh, this is Steve Douglas, who was the uh, president of Campus Crusade for Christ crew, um, died last year. He was a Harvard Business School grad, spent 50 years on staff with crew. The most interesting tribute that I read about him came from his personal assistant from 20, 2009 to 2011. If you want to know if somebody's faith is real, you need to talk to their spouse or somebody they work with closely. So the personal assistant begins to write about his, his life, and, and he, he talks about how um, you know, Steve Douglas is 6'4", played basketball in college, and had enough frequent flyer points to always fly first class because of the nature of his job, and routinely weirded out the checkout attendants by going to them and saying, could you downgrade me to economy? And then when they wouldn't, he would give his first class ticket to his assistant, and he would fly economy. And why would he do that? He, he, it was um, to avoid even the appearance of financial impropriety as a Christian leader, as the representative of crew, but as a follower of Jesus. He wanted, not saying that every Christian needs to never fly first class again, right? It's not what I'm saying. He did that as an act of faith. Um, shared the gospel with people uh, all over the world. Had a time when they came back from a long trip at the end of the day. Uh, they had an early morning the next morning. He should have been sleeping in the car for this three or four hour ride that they had. And he engages the personal assistant about his personal life, his, his spiritual uh, walk, and, and just as, as min, ministering to this young guy, and such that the assistant turns to him and says, you, you should really be resting right now because, I mean, you've got to get up early in the morning. And he said, no, maybe God put me in this car right now to, to encourage you. And the assistant remarked, that's how Steve saw the world. I was the young assistant. He led one of the largest Christian organizations in the world. And on that drive, he believed his job was to serve me. That's just legitimate, simple faith. And you can do that even if you're not the leader of a gigantic Christian organization. This is the life that Jesus calls us to. Trust him and then go and, and bear fruit. Um, check and see if your faith is legitimate.
And so, brothers and sisters, it's going to be difficult, but you're going to have to examine yourself. And you're going to have to ask if you have legitimate faith or illegitimate faith. And my encouragement to you from this passage is ask the Lord to help you repent and believe. Today and tomorrow and next week until the day that you die or Jesus returns and makes all things new. We're saved by faith alone, Martin Luther said. The saving faith is never alone. Let's pray together. I pray, Father, today for any pear trees that need to become apple trees. Uh, For any of us who are producing bad fruit because the tree's bad. That's all of us at some point, Lord. We don't come into the world bearing good fruit for you. I pray that you would give the gift of repentance and faith. Open blind eyes. Incline dead hearts. I pray for each of us as we see all the diseased and unhealthy fruit in our lives that you would help us to get our eyes on the Lord Jesus, the object of our faith, that we would see him as precious, and that we would understand him to be our hope and our life, <coughs> and that we would look like him. So we pray that in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.